There are two scripture readings this morning. The first is comprised of selections from the New Testament on the theme of redemption. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second reading is from the book of Revelation. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy, for you were slain, and your blood has ransomed a people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. We're now in week five of this, uh, five of five, the fifth and final week of this sermon series we're calling obstacles to belief. And we're looking at these reasons that somebody who's not a Christian has for not being a Christian. Uh, you know, they say, well, I might like to be a Christian were it not for X, this thing that Christianity teaches that I, I just can't handle. So uh, today we've come to what I see as, as the most serious objection of all. We've saved the hardest one for last. The title of the sermon is Hell. And the objection goes goes like this: The person says, "Look, does, don't Christians believe that that uh, everybody who's a Christian goes to heaven, and everybody who's not a Christian goes to hell? Because if they do, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I mean, like the worst thing I've ever heard. There, I can't think of a more disgusting, a more off-putting, more offensive idea that everybody who believes like we believe is saved, and everybody else." is damned. If that's what Christians believe, then then that's it right there. I, I'll, I'll walk away. I don't want to be a part of something like that. So in response, the first thing that needs to be done is to set the record straight about what Christians actually do believe, because it, it's been mischaracterized a little bit in that objection. What, what Christians believe, they do believe there is such a place as hell. What they believe is that no one can escape hell without Jesus. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing? You know, that sounds just as bad as, as the objection. Well, it's different in that it's not about uh, Christian versus non. You know, it's not about what tribe you're part of. It's not about what T-shirt you wear, whether you go to church on Sundays. It's not about what culture you're born into. So what, what Christians believe is that all of us, regardless of what religion you were born into, all of us, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, no religion at all, all of us are in the same boat which is the human boat. We're all in the same predicament. And without Jesus, without Jesus intervening, without Jesus standing between us and it, hell is, is our lot. 
And so what I want to talk about this morning is kind of the mechanics of that. Explain the, the Bible's position on that and how that works. And I want to do it in, in three sections, three points this morning's sermon. First, point number one, there are only two sides. Second, the, the second point, first, there are only two sides. Secondly, we chose the wrong side, but Jesus bought us back. And then third and finally, in the end, one, one side's going to win and the other side's going to lose. So those are the three points. There are only two sides. We chose the wrong side, but Jesus bought us back. In the end, one side will win and the other will lose. So it'll be the three sections and we'll take them one at a time. So first, first this morning, there are only two sides. In the universe, there are only there are not three, not four, not one. There are only two sides. And those two sides are, obviously, good and evil, light and darkness. And they're at war with one another. And you say, well, you know, that sounds a little too simplistic. That sounds, you know, like a, like a comic book, or like a, a fairy tale, a superhero movie. You know, these, these two sides. It sounds like a story. You're right, it does sound like a story. But my question to you is, why does it sound like a story? It sounds like a story because this is what our, all our stories are about. So why are all of our stories about this, all of the, the greatest stories we have from the beginning of time until now, are about good versus evil? Why do these stories grip us like this? Why do they resonate so much? Why do they strike such a chord in us? If you believe the Bible, the answer to that question is because all of these stories about good and evil are talking about something very true. So there's a, a reason that the, the Harry Potter books are the best-selling books of all time. There's a reason the Lord of the Rings books and movies have the reach that they have, which is because they're talking about something that, that's actually real. You know, we call these books fantasy, but according to the Bible, they're reality. And that's not by accident. J.K. Rowling is a Christian. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian. They were doing this on purpose. They really didn't make these stories up. They just kind of changed the names and places. That's why they hit us so deeply. Because the Bible says there is such a thing as good, and there is such a thing as evil. But we doubt that now, as a society. We doubt that there really is such a thing as, as evil. Andrew Del Banco is this uh, professor of humanities, or was this professor of humanities at Columbia uh, you know, not a, not a Christian, secular, liberal guy, but he wrote this book about 20 years ago called The Death of Satan. And what he argues in this book is, he says, I, I'm bothered by how uncomfortable modern society has become with evil. We don't know how to talk about it anymore. We, we don't have a category for it anymore. We want everything to be about psychology and sociology and biology. We want to reduce everything down to these causes we can understand. So now we can't address these terrible things that happen in the world. You know, our explanation doesn't match what's really going on. Because what we say is, well, so there's you know, a serial killer. We say, well, what happened is, you know, um, it's his brain chemistry. Something's wrong with his brain, or it's the way he was raised. You know, he was abused as a child, or it's the community he grew up in. It's this or that or the other. And maybe all that's true. You know, maybe all those intermediate causes are true, and maybe his brain does look different than yours when you run a brain scan. But the question is fine, even if you grant all the intermediate causes, what's the root cause? What's the cause behind all the other causes? How, how did it get like this? 
You know, what people will say is that society screwed them up. Well, how did society get so screwed up? How did we get to this place? I don't know if you remember uh, that spot in the movie The Silence of the Lamps where uh, Jodie Foster's character meets Hannibal Lecter for the first time. And she says, you know, not to him, she says, well, how did he get to be like this? You know, she, she hears about the terrible things that he's done. And she says, well, what happened to him to make him like this? And he overhears her, which is a big mistake. And he says this. I want to read to you what he says. I'm going to spare you my Anthony Hopkins impersonation. But he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You have everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? You say, well, that's just fiction. But the thing is, it's not. You know What history has shown us is that he has a point. Because we, we used to have these explanations for why things happened that made us feel better. We said, well, well, racism and violence, what that is, is that's when there's a lack of education and a lack of culture. And then we had World War II. Then we have the Final Solution. Then we have the Holocaust. Then we have the death camps, which come out of what is arguably the most educated, the most cultured society that the world has ever seen. There's this remarkable passage in the memoirs of... Frances Perkins, who is uh, FDR's Secretary of Labor. She's the first uh, female cabinet member ever. And she talks about this day where they're in a cabinet meeting, and FDR turns to her and says, Perkins, have you ever read Kierkegaard? And Perkins says, no. And, you know, if you, if you haven't heard of Kierkegaard, he's one of the greatest Christian philosophers. And FDR had had him recommended to him by his pastor in Hyde Park. She says, no, I've never read Kierkegaard. And FDR says, well, you need to. And I want to read you this quote. He says, you need to, you should, because he's helped me to understand the Nazis as nothing else ever has. I'd never been able to understand how people who were so human, so educated, so refined, could behave like demons until I read Kierkegaard. In other words, he just didn't get it. He couldn't wrap his mind around it until he had a Christian philosopher explain to him the contours of spiritual reality. It's not just about psychology and sociology and biology. It's about good and evil on a supernatural level. And we know as a matter of history that, that nobody believed what was happening in Europe. You know, they were being told. People in North America were being told by Jewish leaders in Europe what was going on. And they just didn't believe it because they didn't have a category for it. It was too awful. It was too atrocious. They couldn't explain it in secular terms. But it is explicable if you, if you take the Bible at its word and you believe that there really is a supernatural being, the devil, that he's real, and that he and his angels, demons, are operating in and among human beings. And you say, well, I could never believe that. You know, that's just so absurd. Who believes something like that today? Fine, but, but let me just press you, and I want you to consider a couple of possibilities. First, I want you to consider the possibility that you're being illogical and inconsistent. You, know, you say you believe in a good supernatural being. Of course, I believe in God, but you say you won't believe in a bad supernatural personal being. So, so why can there be one and not the other? Second, I want you to consider the possibility that you're being culturally narrow. 
You know who has a hard time believing in the devil? White Westerners. The whole rest of the world, all of Latin America, virtually all of Latin America and Africa and Asia, they have no trouble at all believing in demons and evil spirits. So how do you know that your culture is right and their culture is wrong? And the third possibility is I want you to consider that you are just being simplistic, that you're being naive, that you, you want, like we said earlier, you want to boil everything down to things you can understand. But what if reality is multifaceted? What if there's more going on than, than meets the eye? You know, to paraphrase Shakespeare, there is more in heaven and earth than all of your psychologies and sociologies can contain. So that's the first section of the sermon. There are only two sides. And we don't believe that today because we've been told, you know, the devil's not real. Well, guess who wants us to believe the devil's not real? We don't believe that today, but it's what the Bible says. There are only two sides. The devil is real. Evil is real. That's the first section of the sermon. Second, first, there are only two sides. Second, we chose the wrong side. We chose the wrong side, but Jesus bought us back again. And here, this one's almost harder for modern people to believe than the first one. It's one thing to say, well, there are these two cosmic sides of good and evil. That's hard enough to believe. But then what I'm asking you to believe now is not only that, but you're one of the bad guys. You chose the wrong side. You're on the evil side. And again here, we've just been told exactly the opposite. The reason people have such a hard time believing it is because they've been told exactly the opposite. There's this theory out there, uh, this philosophy, which I think a lot of people actually buy into, which, which goes, at their core, at bottom, human beings are basically good. That's the idea, and I think most people sort of believe that. Well, there, if, if you do believe that, you've got a lot of explaining to do. You have to explain why all this terrible stuff keeps happening. You have to explain why you open up the newspapers and it, and it looks like that. So as a way of explaining it, you want to hold on to this idea that human beings at their core are basically good, but you've got to explain all this terrible stuff. The way people do that is that there's a couple of different uh, tactics or responses that might make. The first is along the lines of what we said earlier. They say, well, you know, we're born good, but society messes us up. Society corrupts us, or our families mess us up and corrupt us. And again, first it raises this question of, well, how did society get messed up to begin with? If, if everybody's been born good, then who are these first people that messed up society? But the other problem with this idea that we're born good and then we get messed up later is it just doesn't match our experience. You know, talk to anyone who has actually raised a real child, a real human being. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach a child not to lie. You don't have to teach a child to hit. You have to teach a child not to hit. It's not that they're born these sweet, innocent angels and we corrupt them. It's that if you don't, set, if you don't have an adult setting limits for a child, that child will become a nightmare in two seconds flat. So this idea that we're born good and you know families corrupt us or society corrupt us, it has another number of holes in it, which is why there's a second response. And the second response to this idea of you know trying to defend the idea that human beings are basically good, but how do you square that with all the terrible things that happen in the world? The second way people will try to do that is basically to limit the claim, to qualify it. And say, okay, well, what it is is uh, the vast majority of human beings are basically good. Normal people, 
like me and you, we're basically good. And all the terrible stuff, that comes from just a very small minority of people, a few rotten people, a few bad apples that ruin it for the rest of us. So in response to that, to to show you why that theory doesn't hold water either, I want to use an example. I lived in... uh, in the Isan region of Thailand for a semester. This is northeast Thailand. It's the most rural part of the country. It's the most poor part of the country. It's also the, the part of the country where a disproportionate number of the child prostitutes are taken from. So I think you all know how this works. You know, a family is poor and a guy comes and offers money to take one of the, the daughters and they give consent, and then she goes, you know, he takes her off to, to Bangkok or wherever it is to work in the, the sex industry, servicing clients, mostly from overseas, who come to Thailand specifically for this purpose, seeking this out. And, you know, so let's, first of all, back to the first section. This is evil. That's the only word we have that, that captures what's going on here. It's not sad or unfortunate or wrong. It's evil. It's evil. There's a dark power at work here for something like this to be going on in the world. But then the question is, is okay, so let's say, you know, Satan is behind this ultimately. The, the, the supernatural evil is behind this system ultimately. But he's got some players. You know, there's some people that are operating here. So, you know, sticking with this theory of, well, it's just a few bad apples, a few rotten people that are ruining the world for the rest of us. In this situation, who who is the evil one? You know, in the men that are involved, of the men that are involved in this situation, who who is the man that's the most evil? Is it the guy that, that drives up to the small town and offers to to pay the money? The guy that that's running the business and and takes the girl away? Is he the evil one? Is that the evil man? Or is it rather the the man who who brought this girl into the world? the man who raised this girl and then refuses to protect her and watches as she drives away. Is that the the evil man? Or is it rather the guy who gets on a plane and goes and pays to have sex with this girl? Because he's the one that's, that's keeping the whole industry going. You know, there would be no industry if it weren't for him. So is he the evil man? Is he the, he's the bad one. Or is it rather the guy who's standing up here behind this microphone who knows that this goes on and has done absolutely nothing to stop it? Because, you know, it sounds really hard. sounds kind of dangerous. sounds like you might get hurt. Plus, I've got a lot of other things to do. Plus, there's this TV show I I really like that's really funny. And so I I think I'd rather just stay out of it. Is he the evil man? And you say, are you suggesting that, that being complicit in evil, that acquiescing to evil is just as bad as, as participating in it or committing it? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Because remember section one, there are only two sides. There are only two sides. So if you're not on God's side, guess whose side you're on? If you're going along with Satan's plans and Satan's Schemes. Guess whose side you're on? Guess whose side you're on when you tell that little lie or when you use that person for your own advantage, even though it hurts them, or when you say that thing to your spouse or your kids 
that drives a, a sword into them. Guess whose side you're on when you do that? You say, oh, those things don't feel evil to me. Well, they're not good. They're not good. So guess whose side you're on. Forget even the, the little things for a minute, the little th- evil things that we all do every day. Well, let's also talk about the big evil things that we all do occasionally, you know, a couple times in your life. I don't know what the worst thing is that you've ever done, but you do. And I'm not bringing it up to just make you feel guilty for the sake of making you feel guilty. I'm bringing it up to ask you, when you did that thing, whose side were you on? Now, you didn't mean to choose Satan's side. You didn't mean to align yourself with evil, just like Adam and Eve didn't mean to. When Satan comes and gives them this choice, he says, look, God told you to do this, but you don't have to. You don't have to do that. You can, you can be in charge yourself. You can be on your own thing, your own team. You can do your own thing. That's what, what Satan offers. But what happens in that moment in Eden is nothing less than us switching sides. Because it was really the ultimate con. You know, he says you can do your own thing. There's no such thing as doing your own thing. There's no such thing as being on your own team. You're on God's team or you're on the other team. And when we say, all right, forget God, we'll, we'll go our own way, what we essentially do is we, we sell ourselves into slavery. You know, this other motif that's so prominent in our, our stories about selling your soul to the devil, that really happened. And, and once it happens, it's not like you can just say, whoops, you know, I, I think I'd like to go back to God's side. I think I made a mistake. No, no, no. The, the transaction has already occurred. What the, the way the Bible talks about it is it says we're all slaves to sin. We are all slaves to sin. And if you have ever had the experience of, man, I didn't want to do that, but I did it anyway, then you know what I'm talking about in slavery, in bondage. And once you've sold yourself into slavery, you don't have the resources to buy yourself back out again. There's no going back But God does. God does have the resources to buy you back out of slavery, and that is why Jesus came and died. That's the whole point of it. So you heard those scripture readings earlier, those passages from the New Testament. Uh, The word they use is redemption. Now, redemption, we've, we've lost track of what that word means. It's not a spiritual word. We've had whole sermons on this theme before. The word redeem is actually a financial term, and all it means is to buy back something you used to have. You redeem it. You used to have it, you lost it, now you buy it back. That's what God does with us, and he buys us back from the devil. Now, you know, what's the price? How does he do that? What's the deal that's arranged between God and Satan? The price is nothing less than the blood and the life of his own son. People say, well, you know, I don't understand why um, God couldn't just forgive us. You know, why does Jesus have to die in order for us to be forgiven? Why can't he just declare that we're forgiven? Well, what that question misses is, is it's not just about forgiveness. It's about that we belonged to someone else. And the only way for him to get us back was to buy us back. So Satan says, sure, I'll, I'll take Jesus for these measly human beings. I'll take that deal. If I can do with him whatever I want, if I can make him suffer and watch him suffer, sure. I'll take that deal. That's the price that God had to pay. And that's the second section of the sermon. We chose the wrong side. We chose the wrong side, but Jesus bought us back. Third and finally this morning, in the end, one side will win 
and the other side will lose. In the end, when it's all over, one side will win and the other side will lose. Because if the story ended there with uh, God buying us back with Christ's life, God gets us back, but Satan gets Jesus, then you sort of have to call this fight between good and evil, you sort of have to call it a draw, almost. Because God gets us, but Satan gets Jesus, so it's kind of a tie. But it doesn't end there, according to the Bible. You know, we talked about how uh, Satan conned us, essentially, and said, you know, be your own boss, but really we were tricked into being on his team. Well, here God sort of cons Satan, because he gives Satan exactly what Satan asked for. He gives Satan exactly what Satan bargained for, which was the life of Christ. But then, what, what Satan doesn't bargain for is that death can't hold him, that Christ is stronger than death. And when Christ is raised on the third day, on Easter, which Satan didn't see coming, it creates a real problem for Satan. Because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back to settle the score. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And, you know, it talks about it in Revelation 19. We, we see in uh, Luke 2, Jesus coming the first time. When Jesus comes the first time, he comes as this innocent baby, this helpless baby that's harmless, can't hurt anybody. And he comes to, to give his own life, to sacrifice himself. That's not why he's coming the second time. That's not how he's coming the second time. That's not what it looks like when he comes the second time. John talks about it in a vision, Revelation 19. I want to read this to you. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how it's going to be when Jesus comes back the second time. He's coming back to to put an end to Satan. He's coming back to put an end to evil. And he's not going to do it by preaching a sermon. He's not going to do it by teaching a class or giving everyone a magic potion. He's going to do it, the Bible says, by waging a war. You say, oh, I just don't like the sound of that. You know, that makes me very uncomfortable. Just way too militaristic. You know, I really, really don't like the whole idea of that. Well, that's fine. You may not like the idea of that. That doesn't change the fact that it's so. You know, people say this about the world today. It's like, well, I just wish we didn't have to have armies. It'd be better if we didn't have to have armies, didn't have to have war. You're right. It would be better. But evil doesn't like to surrender. You know, going back to what we talked about in the first section, at the end of the day, there's only one way to, to stop Hitler. I know this is an extreme example, but it happened. There's only one way to stop him, and we have all these years of appeasement, of trying to compromise. Well, surely, you know, these are both rational, self-interested parties. Surely we can come to some sort of agreement. And all the appeasement just makes things worse. At the end of the day, you have to fight. Or, or to take an example that's closer to home, at the end of the day, there's only one way to stop slavery in this country. Why, why is slavery so intractable? Why can we not get rid of it? Why does it just keep spreading, just keeps expanding? It just keeps trying to push its tentacles farther and farther. You can explain that if you, if you realize that slavery isn't just a political issue. It isn't just an economic issue or a cultural issue. It's an issue of good 
and evil. There is a power behind slavery. And so then you have decade after decade of talk, 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 talk. 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, we have this compromise and that compromise and the other compromise. And finally, Lincoln is elected on a platform of, look, no more compromises. And if that means we have a war, then we have a war. And what the Bible says is the same way it's been throughout history is the way it's going to be at the end of history. Because Satan isn't the type of enemy that's just going to lay down his arms and sign a peace treaty and say, oh, I was wrong. You know, I'll join the good guys. That's not how it's going to go. The way it's going to go, Revelation 20 tells us, is that he's going to be thrown. He's going to be thrown. Satan and all of his angels and the demons are going to be thrown into a lake of fire, more literally a lake of burning sulfur. They're going to be thrown into hell. Now, I want you to catch this, because this is remarkable. The biblical depiction of hell is the exact opposite of the popular conception of hell. Because popularly, what do we think of as hell? We think of it as Satan's lair, as his headquarters, as the place where he's king and where he has dominion. The Bible says the exact opposite. Hell is his place of doom. Hell is the place where he's thrown to be destroyed. There is a word, by the way, for the, for the place that Satan is king and he has dominion. It's called earth. The Bible calls Satan the god of this earth. He calls him the prince of this world. And he's going to continue to occupy that post until the day that Christ comes and violently, by force, takes that position away from him. And you say, okay, great, so it's all good news. You know, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing bad about hell and the Christian vision of hell. It's just this place where, where evil powers get thrown at the end of time so we can all live happily ever after. So maybe it's okay after all. But the last thing we need to talk about, I wish I could say that. You know, I wish I could end it there. Uh, the last thing we need to talk about, we'll close with this, is that it's not quite that simple. Because what the Bible says is that when it comes to human beings... God is not going to rescue anyone against their will. So he, he's paid for everybody. You know, this, this price that's paid to redeem us, to ransom us is another word that the Bible uses. This price that Christ pays is for everybody. Everybody has been set free legally. Everybody's been bought and paid for. So the door is open, but you still have to walk through it. You know, you're on Satan's side. That's the side you chose you thought it looked better. And now that God has opened the door to you, he's not going to drag you through the door. He's not going to come and get you and drag you through the door against your will. You have to choose to walk through the door on your own free accord, just like you chose to walk over to Satan's side on your own free accord to begin with. And you say, well, well who wouldn't choose that? You know, who, who on earth wouldn't choose to go back over to God's side? Somebody who's proud, somebody who's stubborn, somebody who's obstinate, somebody who doesn't think they need to be rescued. And what Scripture seems to suggest, and nobody knows how it's going to go down but God himself, and I'm certainly not going to stand up in here and say, well, it's going to happen like this. But what Scripture seems to suggest is that some people, when it's all said and done, will not make that choice. They'll say, no, I don't need God. I don't need to be rescued. And for those people, if you're on Satan's side, you're going where Satan's going. There are only two sides. And you say, well then, if that's how it is, 
then this whole sermon's been for nothing. You know, because if anyone isn't saved in the end, if any human being isn't saved and is damned instead, well, then, then what's the point? You know, I can't be a Christian. I can't worship a God like that. But my question to you is, who are you to, to stand in judgment over God like that and make that kind of ultimatum? You know, we, we've already been over this. You're the one that chose evil. You're the one that switched over to Satan's side and had to be bought back by the blood of Christ. You're the morally reprehensible one. And now you're trying to say, well, my moral standards are higher than God's, and I'm going to hold God up to my standard, and he better measure up to me, or else I'm not going to worship him. I mean, who, who do you think you are? That's just not how it works. Paul says in Romans 9, shall the clay say to the potter, well, why did you make me like this? You know, either God's real or he's not. If he's not real, then we can say whatever we want about him. We can make him into whatever idea we want him to be, you know, cotton candy and flowers and whatever else. It doesn't really matter because he's not real. He's just a construct. But if he is real, then he's God. If he's real, then he's God. And so who are we to sit here and say, well, he has to be like this or I'm not going to worship him. It doesn't work like that. And what I would suggest is that you stop worrying about how anybody else is going to respond to God or how God is going to deal with anybody else. Because that's actually not yours to worry about. That's his to worry about. He's going to worry about that. Stop worrying about how anybody else is going to respond to God or how God's going to deal with anybody else and start worrying about what's your story about, which is how you're going to respond to God and how God is going to deal with you based on that response. There's this verse in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, the whole point of my ministry, the whole point of my life is to plead with you, come back to God. And I'd say the same thing about my life. I'd say the same thing about this church. The whole point is to plead with you, come back to God. Your freedom has already been bought. The price has already been paid. You don't have to be on the enemy's side anymore. Come back to God. Today, do it now. You may have another chance. You you may have another chance tomorrow or the the next day or the, the day after that, but you may not. And why, why would you mess around with this? Why would you not just take the opportunity that's being given to you to switch back to the side that you're supposed to be on to begin with? Because if you do, if you do that, then you can be among the throng that on the day of the Lord, when this all goes down, you can be among that throng that's singing that new song that we, we heard read during the scripture reading this morning. I want to read it to you again. The song says, Blessing and honor and glory and power to the one who sits on the throne. You are worthy because with your blood you bought us back from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made us to be a kingdom to serve our God. See, you're going to be standing there and you're going to be saying, how did I end up here? How did I end up here around the throne of God? Because I chose the other guy and I should be going where he's going. How did I end up with all of God's people? And somebody's going to point and say, look, look at him. It's him. It's the one with the robe dipped in blood. It's because of him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. God, we can't believe any of this 
without your spirit, without you speaking to our hearts and pulling on us and piercing through all of our defenses and whispering to us that deep down we know that it's true and this is the way it is. I pray that you do that now. I pray that you do what I cannot do, what no amount of argument or reading of texts or storytelling can do, which is to speak to us and tell us that this is true. And once you've done that, I pray that you'd show us where to go, that you'd show us how to come back to you, that you'd show us how to walk through that door that you've opened for us through the blood of Christ, and that as we do it, we would have this sense of a weight being lifted. That even though we, we still sin and make mistakes, and even though we still relapse and go back to the wrong side, that we have this sense of being bought by you, being bought back by you, and belonging to you in such a way that no one can ever take us away again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.